have very few actual details of the incident, but I've seen enough movies that I can probably write a screenplay of how it went down. I would have it at night, mainly because it's more dramatic. There's the tumult of numerous horses approaching, followed by loud banging on the door, so much so that the occupants were probably too afraid to answer at first. Finally, the man answers, opening the entrance to his modest adobe home. The man on the other side, a large strapping Apache, brushes past the physically smaller Mexican and motions for his warriors to follow him. This group enters, much to the terror of the owner, and with a wide sweep of his arm, the leader sends everything on a nearby table to the floor. But the table isn't empty for long. The warriors bring in an incredibly large figure and put him on it. They then turn to the Mexican, verifying that he is the local doctor. The man meekly nods before being instructed that he has his next patient. He might not move at first, looking at the towering figure now lying on his table with what, even from a distance, appears to be a gunshot wound. But his hesitancy angers the intruders, who pull their own guns and, in accented, maybe broken Spanish, tell the doctor that he is to save this man's life, or lose his, then and there. Looking at his family, the doctor has no choice. He grabs the tools of his profession to begin immediately. And for the next several hours, knowing that failure will result in the death of him and his entire village, the doctor works on saving his patient. And in my screenplay at least, it's possible he only finds out later that the life in his hands was none other than the great chief and scourge of Mexicans and Americans alike, Mangas Coloradas. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 41, Cleaning House. The path that eventually took Mangos Coloradas to that home of the frightened Mexican doctor starts in May and June of 1862, as the Union forces advanced into Arizona, just a step behind the retreating Confederates. As part of their seizure of Tucson, and really all of Arizona, troops had also built a new fort outside the city, Fort Lowell, and had reoccupied the former forts along the San Pedro River. And here I need to make a minor correction slash clarification. Last week I said troops had re-established Fort Breckenridge, but then quickly abandoned it again because of how thirdly it had been raised by retreating troops in the previous year, and that it now lacked strategic importance. While that was true, I should also note that Fort Buchanan, near modern Sonoida, was also reoccupied briefly and then abandoned again for the same reason. It's a trivial point, but I just wanted to make it clear. Anyway, with all that done, the troops then had to prepare for the imminent arrival of their commander, Colonel James Henry Carleton. In fact, I've seen it written that one of the motivations for establishing Fort Lowell was to separate the soldiers somewhat from Tucson's señoritas, so they could actually you know, concentrate on their jobs. Carleton had left Fort Yuma on the banks of the Colorado on May 15th and arrived in Tucson on June 7th. Of course, this being the age of pageantry, he didn't just arrive. When he entered the city, a four-gun battery of artillery fired a salute in his honor. 
This incident becomes more than a bit comical when you consider the fact that Carlton and this battery had actually been together on the march from Fort Yuma. However, Carlton had purposefully taken a longer route to Tucson in order to allow the artillery to arrive first so it could be properly prepared for his grand entrance. Though many historians paint Carlton as something of an uptight moralizer, he apparently did like his pageantry. Also waiting for Carlton in Tucson was news that he had since been promoted to Brigadier General. With that feather in his cap, or maybe I should say star on his shoulder, Carlton turned his attention to the frontier town he was now occupying. The day after the guns had heralded his triumphant entry, the newly promoted commander made a proclamation, declaring that the United States Congress had declared the federal territory of Arizona from the western half of New Mexico. As we'll see in a coming episode, Carlton really jumped the gun on this bit, as it would be more than a year and a half before Congress actually did any such thing. That didn't stop him from appointing himself military governor and a subordinate as acting secretary of state, however. Now, Carlton, as I've said, was something of an uptight moralizer with a very Victorian view of the world. Zealous would be a word that I think many historians would not hesitate to use. So imagine his reaction when he started taking a good look around the run-down, rough-and-tumble, overall lawless frontier town of Tucson. No, this would not do at all. So during the next few days, Carlton went about cleaning house. First and foremost, he declared martial law until the territorial government could get up and going. That meant no civilian courts, but military ones whose orders could not be appealed until civilian judges were in place. The good news, though, is he promised that no executions would follow convictions unless orders came directly from President Lincoln. Always wary of spies and saboteurs, Carlton's declaration also instituted a military pass system to check the identities of all of those entering or leaving Tucson. Anyone staying in the city also had to take an oath of allegiance to the United States, or they would be forced to leave. And that also applied to those who did not have a lawful job or some other means of support. Part of the reason for instituting these measures is that the general felt that chaos and disorder reigned in Tucson. He would write that these measures were taken, quote, so that when a man does have his throat cut, his house robbed, or his field ravaged, he may at least have the consolation of knowing that there is some law that will reach him that does the injury, end quote. His Secretary of State also immediately moved to levy a tax on the people of Tucson, charging businesses $5 a month, the proceeds of which were to go to support sick or wounded members of the California Column. For any place selling liquor, however, that tax was jacked up to $100 a month. And, oh, by the way, if you wanted to sell such beverages, you had to get a license first from Carlton. Any place that sold alcohol but failed to procure the license would be subject to escalating fines and eventually the confiscation of all their liquor. Perhaps the harshest crackdown, and the one that in my opinion shows Carlton's antipathy toward what he considered loose morals, was the levy on gambling houses. These also had to pay $100 a month but $100 for each and every gaming table in their establishment. 
If they didn't, they also would be met with a series of stiff fines and eventually the confiscation of all their property. And just for good measure, they would be further forbidden from gambling inside the entire territory. The final measure in this crackdown was the expulsion of the worst of the riffraff. Carlton would send various prisoners to Fort Yuma for safekeeping, including nine men in particular. Most were suspected murderers, and Carlton wrote that he considered them to be, quote, cutthroats, gamblers, and loafers, who have infested this town to the fear of all good citizens. Nearly everyone, I believe, has either killed his man or been engaged in helping kill him, end quote. These men, he suggested, should be sent to Alcatraz and held there until the end of the war. And we, of course, also know that one of the men eventually arrested will be none other than Sylvester Mowry, owner of the Patagonia Mine. Now, we went over most of this in episode 38, but Mowry was charged with having aided the rebels by a German metallurgist who was probably better from having been canned by Mowry for trying to steal silver. Add to this his boasts, made in somewhat poor taste, that he would shortly be named governor under the new Confederate regime, and that he and 20 men could easily whip 100 Yankee soldiers, and his possible correspondence and connection to known secessionists, and it was enough evidence for Carlton. Shortly after arriving in Tucson, the general dispatched a colonel and somewhere between 85 and 130 men south to Patagonia to take Maori into custody. This group arrived at 3 a.m. and promptly arrested Maori and several others, also confiscating his mine and smelter. Maori was brought back to Tucson, where he was seated before a board of officers, which functioned sort of like a grand jury. The real damning evidence here were letters written to Confederate officers such as Hunter, Baylor, and Sibley, even President Jefferson Davis, mostly begging for help against the Apache, which we've discussed before. I've quoted excerpts from several of these letters in recent episodes. Now, most of that could be explained away for various reasons, which is exactly what Maori tried to do. However, the letter to Sibley did contain a wee bit about what Maori knew of Union troop movements. And there's a word for giving troop movements away to the enemy. Treason. The board decided there was sufficient evidence to deprive Maori of his liberty and bring him to a full trial before a military commission. Maori tried to appeal this several times, saying that he desperately needed to be overseeing his mind to keep it running, and that he had made some very powerful friends, including U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward, that could surely sort out this whole misunderstanding. The general, however, was unmoved. If anything, he was indignant. In his agreement with the board's conclusion, Carlton would write, quote, In this unholy war, which has filled the land with widows and orphans, his house was a place where blatant rebels could come and curse the government with impunity and without rebuke. His home a spot where men having the reputation of being ruffians, as well as rebels, could come for shelter and food a place where men with arms could obtain ammunition with which to attack the troops of the Republic. These records also show that his presence in this territory has been against its interests and against those of the United States. End quote. Maori was sent to Fort Yuma to be held until ordered to be released or stand trial. 
He would spend the next six months at Fort Yuma fuming at Carlton, telling everyone that would listen that he was innocent and that he would be released any day now, and also that he would make sure Uncle Sam pay for the confiscation of his property. He also apparently started to claim that this was a personal vendetta against him on the part of Carlton. This last part has become part of the lore of the incident, though there is little to back it up as the two never really had any dealings before now. Though I don't doubt that Carlton may have disliked Maori personally. If you recall from when I introduced him back in episode 32, Maori had a bit of a reputation as both a womanizer and someone who liked drinking. A lot. Carlton, on the other hand, was a devoted family man who was known for being a rigid moralizer who tended to judge those that didn't live up to his standards. However, I think in the end, Carlton truly thought Maori was a no-good, dirty, rotten traitor, and that sealed his fate, not some personal animosity. According to early state historian James H. McClintock, however, the imprisonment wasn't that irksome as he was treated well by the officers at Fort Yuma who enjoyed conversing with him, and he was even provided with fine bourbon, which had been recently confiscated by the army in Kentucky. We won't get into all the legal proceedings, but after some back and forth about who had jurisdiction to try him for what, Maori was ultimately released on November 4, 1862. Another board had been convened to review his case, but as everyone was a little preoccupied with the Civil War, the army failed to press their charges, and in the end, Maori walked. He returned to his mine, only to find that it had been put into receivership until his case could be decided, but the person left operating it had been less than diligent, to the point that all mining had actually ceased, kind of proving the point of Maori's appeal claims earlier. Maori would spend the rest of his life both trying to rehabilitate the mine and get back at Carlton. He would actually file a lawsuit for more than a million dollars in December 1862 against Carlton and the other soldiers for his arrest and the state of his property. In 1864, he also would persuade a U.S. senator from California to open an investigation into the matter. Carlton, however, also fought back, issuing an order in 1864 that the Patagonia mine would be sold at auction. The next month, when he learned that Maori might be returning to Arizona, he ordered him expelled from the territory. The feuding would only stop in 1871 after Maori's death from Bright's disease in London, where he had traveled to consult with a specialist. And just to bring in another Arizona connection about to shortly return to our story, none other than Charles D. Poston was at Maori's bedside when he drew his last breath. After surveying the results of his policies in Tucson, Carlton said with some satisfaction, quote, Order sprang from disorder, and in a short time a den of thieves was converted into a peaceful village. End quote. While taking on the issue of public morality, it did not distract his attention from the East in taking the fight against the rebels. At this point, Carlton still had no good idea about the size of the Confederate force that might still be in New Mexico and has not even been able to get word through to Lieutenant Colonel Edward R.S. Canby that his column was on its way to reinforce him. So, on June 15, 1862, Carlton sent three express riders to the Rio Grande to find and inform Canby. I have some sympathy for these three guys, because their path took them straight through Apache Pass. 
you can probably see where this is going. That's right, the three were ambushed by Apache. Two of them are just dead. They fell right then and there after a small fight, with their mutilated bodies later found. The third, a man named John Jones, actually managed to escape and kept heading east, only to fall right into the hands of some lingering Confederate troops near Masilla. He was arrested and locked in a jailhouse, while his dispatches were studied by the local rebel commander to learn all about the strength of Carlton's forces and his expected troop movements. But here's the twist. Remember a couple episodes ago when I mentioned how paranoid and secretive Carlton was? To the point that he actually gave false dispatches to his messengers? Yep, this is where that comes into play. The rebels got their hands on fake information. And surprisingly enough, Jones was able to actually pass the real dispatches, written on honest-to-goodness toilet paper, to some northern sympathizers to get to Canby. So don't let anyone ever tell you it's not good to be at least a little paranoid. Shortly after Jones and his two doomed companions set off, Carlton also sent 140 men under Lieutenant Colonel Edward E. Eyre to start moving toward the Rio Grande. They made it to the abandoned mail station in Apache Pass on June 25, 1862. And it's while there they heard the firing of four gunshots, a sign that Apache were in the area, but might be interested in talking. Iyer's explicit instructions were to, quote, avoid collision with the Apache, and he was looking more to treat with Cochise and get permission to pass through in safety as to save the fighting for the actual rebels. Now, my sources give slightly different versions, but either Iyer raised the white flag of truce, or an approaching Apache party carried one, but either way, a group of roughly 12 warriors rode into camp with Cochise at their head. Though everyone reports that somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 Apache were in the area. Iyer had a pretty genial encounter with Cochise, offering him tobacco and pemmican and explaining the army's presence and where it was going. He also reiterated Carlton's desire to have peace and not to carry on the fight with the Apache. Cochise, for his part, seemed friendly enough and made the standard promises of peace and friendship, blah, 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 blah. They also talked about meeting again later that evening, though this never happened. Finally, Cochise and his men rode out of camp unharmed and unmolested. And this is the part where historians really fall on ire, calling him naive and too gullible or he possibly did not realize the sheer amount of anger that had welled up in Cochise following the Bascom affair. Because, after having concluded his nice little chat with Cochise, Iyer learned that three of his men had gone missing, having wandered too far away from camp without orders. Their bodies were shortly found, stripped and mutilated. Two of them had been scalped. While Iyer had been conducting the so-called Pemmican Treaty with Cochise, the Apache had just killed, with impunity, three of his men. My sources disagree here, with most saying that a small expedition was sent out immediately for retribution, but the Apache could not be found. However, another has the head of one of the cavalry companies throwing down his saber and rifle and openly arguing with Iyer because he was not being allowed to hunt down the Apache that had just killed his men. 
In either case, Iyer had everyone move two miles to the east to make camp there instead of in Apache Pass itself. That night, a few Apache in the hills fired a handful of bullets into the camp, but overall, Iyer's force moved on to the Rio Grande without further incident. Where Iyer had really erred, though, is that during his pleasant chat with Cochise, he had given away vital information about Carlton's troop size and planned movements. And now that the wily chief had those details, he did what Apache chiefs did best. He planned an ambush. Runners were sent out to all the local Apache leaders, including Mangas Colorados and his white mountain Apache ally Francisco. A force of some 200 Apache again were waiting for the arrival of the White Eyes. They only had a couple weeks before they got what they wanted. On July 10th, Carlton sent a force of 126 men under Captain Thomas L. Roberts toward the Rio Grande. This force would ultimately be split into two parts due to concerns about water supplies, with Roberts and 68 men heading toward Apache Pass and the rest lagging behind. These tired, thirsty troops made it to the abandoned mail station around noon on July 15th. Though Cochise and his men had doubtlessly seen the force approaching for some time, they waited until they had reached the mail station and had started to break ranks before attacking. A force of Apache fell on some men and wagons that had fallen behind. The men at the station, hearing the gunfire, quickly moved to intercede. A fierce skirmish broke out, leaving one soldier and maybe four Apache dead, but Robert's force was able to bring everyone safely into the camp. However, at this point, the captain was faced with the same dilemma that Bascom had the previous year. He had to get water from the nearby spring, which, you might recall, could only be accessed through a spot that just screamed ambush. And now Roberts knew that an ambush was going to happen. But with no other options, Roberts ordered a small detachment to get to the spring while he led a group in support. And, like you would expect, as soon as they proceeded through the narrow canyon toward the water, Apache fire erupted from all around. Historian Paul Andrew Hutton says at first there were no casualties because the Apache were firing too high, but that quickly changed. With only bad choices left to him, Roberts ordered men to keep pushing to the spring. He then ordered the howitzers with him to fire shells above the fortified positions the Apaches occupied. The shells softened up the Apache ranks, causing them to scatter, quote, like quail in every direction, end quote, in the words of one participant. Roberts also ordered skirmishing parties to advance and take the Apache positions. During all this confusion, the Americans were actually greatly aided by the presence of a dog named Butch, who ran around the hillside scouting Apache and barking at them. Butch continued this harrowing until an Apache actually shot his toe off. The Americans were able to take the high ground and give enough cover fire to allow men to reach the spring. Roberts had lost two men, with two more wounded. Apache losses were estimated at anything from a couple to 63, but there is no consensus on which number is closer to the truth, though personally I'm inclined to go with the lower figure. With the immediate fighting over, Roberts ordered a small detachment to head out of the pass and find the second half of his company that was still on its way and tell them to stay out of the area for the time being. This detachment set out at once, 
But 20 miles west of Apache Pass, a group of some 20 Apache suddenly appeared and another skirmish began. One man was wounded and two horses were killed immediately. At this point, the head of the detachment saw one private John Teal, who had lagged behind because he had dismounted to walk beside his fatigued horse. The Apache had managed to get between Teal and the rest of the soldiers, so giving him up for dead, the rest fled as speedily as they could. Teal got back on his horse as well to try and lose the Apache, but the animal was shot out from underneath him. Taking cover behind the body of his dead mount, Teal decided to make a last stand of it, taking careful aim and firing on one of the warriors. His shot hit, and the warrior tumbled off his animal. And then the skirmish stopped. Literally stopped. The rest of the warriors broke off from attacking Teal and carefully and gingerly picked up the body of the fallen man. Teal, who had been given up for dead by his comrades, straggled into camp several hours later, around midnight. The next morning, Roberts was able to regroup and find the second half of his company, leading them up into Apache Pass under heavy guard. Another skirmish broke out, but using the same combination of howitzers and skirmishers, the soldiers were able to put the Apache to flight once more. The Battle of Apache Pass was now over, and shockingly was a defeat for Cochise. Though only maybe a dozen or so warriors had actually been killed, the Americans were able to secure safe passage through the pass. Despite having superior numbers and the better position, the Apache were just no match for the howitzer shells, something they said time and time again going forward. This is also, by the way, billed as the largest engagement between U.S. Army forces and the Apache in the history of Arizona. But what about Teal and his experience? Why had the warriors just suddenly stopped attacking him? Well, because it wasn't just any warrior that the private had shot. As you might have guessed, given today's introduction, Teal had managed to seriously wound none other than Mangus Coloradus himself. We only have a couple anecdotal accounts of this, but according to those, a group of warriors, including the future Geronimo, were tasked with riding with the old chief down to Hanos. There they found the local doctor and threatened him and his entire village at gunpoint to save the chief's life. As we will see, Mangus Coloradus lived to fight another day, but his days were now numbered. The defeat at the Battle of Apache Pass and the wounding of Mangus Coloradus would have a large impact on Cochise and his war moving forward. He would no longer be able to call upon the hundreds of warriors as he had in the past, as most of those serving under other Apache leaders, including the now recovering Coloradas, went their separate ways. Also, this battle convinced Roberts to recommend to Carlton that a permanent army presence be stationed in the pass. Otherwise, quote, every command will have to fight for the water and are almost certain to lose some lives, end quote. Carlton, who always had an eye for logistics, agreed with the assessment and so issued General Order 12 in late July 1862 to build a fort there and garrison it with 100 soldiers. The construction on what would become known as Fort Bowie began that same month, and by August, a defensive wall had already been built around it. 
For years, Fort Bowie would remain a defensive bulwark against the Apache, which never tried to take the heavily defensible position, despite it being practically built on their doorstep. And so you know, the site of the fort is now overseen by the National Park Service, and with a short hike in the Chiricahuas, you can actually make it to the ruins of Fort Bowie today. Doing just that remains high on my list of things to do in Arizona. We are going to leave Carlton and Cochise here for now, one planning his next move and the other nursing his wounds. Next time, we're going to follow Carlton as he takes up command of the whole New Mexico Territory and decides that he is done, just done, putting up with Apache and Navajo alike. And we will also, 40 plus episodes and nearly a year since we started this journey together, watch as the U.S. finally creates a place officially named Arizona. But for now, I'm going to say goodbye to you all for two weeks as I go off to celebrate Christmas and New Year's and get ready for the coming year. I'll see you all with new episodes on January 10th. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Happy Holidays! Happy Holidays!